Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. Are you aware of how much algorithms fill your life? Did Netflix tell you about a show you might like? Were you denied a loan? Were you granted a loan? Many of these decisions were based on algorithms using some kind of data about you. Many proponents of them say algorithms are objective and accurate, but humans build them. And just like humans, they make mistakes and they can amplify the problems in our society, especially in criminal justice. Now, a new course is in the works at the University of New Mexico. Two of the women working on it are here with me today. Kathy Powers is an associate professor of political science. Sonia Gibson-Rankin is an associate professor of law. They are among 12 faculty members at UNM selected for the 2022 Women in STEM Awards. Professor Gibson-Rankin says she and Powers have been working on this idea with a group of other scholars. We are members of the Interdisciplinary Working Group on Algorithmic Justice. It's a group of computer scientists, lawyers and legal analysts, social scientists, political scientists from Santa Fe Institute, University of New Mexico, and some other partners across the country. And within that, uh, Dr. Powers, myself, and Dr. Melanie Moses from Computer Science all got to this idea that what we've learned most of all is how differently our disciplines have prepared us for this work and what could really happen if all of these disciplines work together to ensure that the use of algorithms, artificial intelligence, machine learning would be used to benefit society and that that will best come about by students in graduate programs across our wonderful research institution, understanding what it means from their disciplinary perspective and taking into account understandings from other areas of study. That was excellent. I, only thing I was just gonna add is, it is the forefront of human rights. Also legal questions about, as Professor uh, Gibson will talk about disparate impact. But we were really driven by interest in topics like criminal justice. And when algorithms are being used to solve a problem, for instance, errors in human decision-making, how can algorithmic bias come in when we don't recognize that human beings create these algorithms and embed their own biases in the design of these algorithms? And so, so it was criminal justice, it was medical care, for instance, parole. How do these algorithms determine who gets parole and who doesn't? Who has the power to decide? What are the factors that go into that equation or that recipe to decide? And we were all driven by this, by issues of justice and fairness. This is where having Professor Gibson and former Dean Matheson talked to us about the problems we thought that algorithms could solve. And in using them now, recognizing sort of new issues that have huge implications for human rights in the future. Why is it so important to understand this? Talk a little bit about the extent to which our society now relies on algorithms. We rely on algorithms across everything, health, criminal justice, college admissions, national security. And so we're using algorithms to help us either solve problems that human beings had difficulty solving before to try to remove the error in human decision making. And what we're really interested in is in sort of doing this on one side of the spectrum, our, our algorithms usually 
actually the tools of the powerful? And can they really solve problems of human error, human bias and judgment? Or are they really the tools of the powerful creating mechanisms to make decisions that benefit them as opposed to at all being possible to promote or deal with bias or justice? And on the other end of the spectrum, are they tools that can help us? And if we can study them and understand them, and if we train algorithm designers to understand how bias can come in and where it can lead to injustice, maybe we can design algorithms that can help humans make better decisions to solve problems that are difficult for us by ourselves. So sort of, we're trying to understand both ends of the spectrum. And Professor Rankin, what happens when we do not address the inherent biases? built into algorithms. So what had initially occurred is that there were probably about 60 plus of these products being used throughout the country in lots of different ways. They're being used to determine if someone should be released on parole. They're being used to determine sentencing recommendations. They're being used to determine ideas of who should be retained before trial. But what we are unaware of is the kind of algorithm or decision-making that the software is making beforehand. So initially, these products were created for probation and parole decisions, but they started being used in pretrial sentencing. They started being used in other parts of the criminal justice system. And what we already understand is that if a person has been accused, convicted of a crime, and has served their time or serving their time, they have different constitutional rights than one who has not been convicted of a crime. But we've been given no indication if the software was adjusted for various constitutional protections that a person should have. So that's something that we've watched happen was these softwares were being used and there was no evidence or no way to track how the software was actually making its decisions. Did it make its decisions or recommendations based off of other people in that jurisdiction and the choices they had made to give a recommendation on what me committing this, you know, accused of committing a crime might have done? Or was it looking at national data? Was it looking at other people from my same background demographic? Did it take race? into account? Did it take gender into account? Was it violating equal protection rights or due process or any kind of other privacy issues that we're unaware of? Did they gather the information to make these decisions based off of my Netflix movies that I go through or that everyone goes through in my jurisdiction, right? And so without understanding the data points that go into it, it's very easy for there to be concern that there might be an equal protection violation somewhere in the making of the software. Mm. I think people thought, you know, these magical algorithms could take some of the inherent bias out of human decision making, but it sounds like they tend to amplify them, maybe? Is that fair? There's a very strong opinion about that in the human rights community, that they are actually now tools to either exacerbate, not just let's put the problems in human decision-making, but what if it's purposeful? And what if these are actually tools that allow us to discriminate? Mm recognizing that the average person doesn't doesn't even recognize that they are being harmed multiple times a day in multiple different ways interacting with algorithms and they don't even realize it making decisions about whether or not they have access to health care or not so um, a family friend for example has cancer and was denied access to a new treatment 
and it was determined by an algorithm. So then the question is, what were the factors that went into that decision making and who had the power to decide, who had the power to decide what those factors are? Mm. And oftentimes it's, and what I'm really interested in as a political scientist is the, is it a single individual who has such power? Is it a group of individuals that have such power? Is there any sort of oversight is there training on sort of how can these go wrong? Kathy O'Neill has this great book called um, Weapons of Mass Destruction, and she has a great example that there was a bank that had a white male who was in charge of approving loans and had the power to determine the algorithm that was used. And one of the factors that he included was your hip hop purchasing history, assuming that that would help him identify African-Americans. And what he didn't realize is that young people today listen to hip hop. So not only was he discriminating against African-American people, but then there was a generational effect. And it was because it was one person who had such power, there was no oversight and was using proxies that he thought would sort of get him to what he was intentionally trying to do. And that's just one example. And he was intentionally trying to weed out African-American borrowers? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So you're bringing up an interesting, rather than, I guess, a sin of omission, where people assuming the goodness of tech could weed out these nasty human tendencies to be biased. You're saying people in the human rights community are actually thinking far more that this is sins of commission. Right. And very concerned about that. In fact, Kathy O'Neill has testified before Congress on this issue. And so, and, and, and these are two very different pathways to algorithmic bias happening. Mm. One is unintentional and actually really trying to solve a set of problems and not recognizing new ones that can be created with technology. And then uh, the other where it is intentional. This is University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrak, and I'm talking with Kathy Powers, Associate Professor of Political Science at UNM, and Sonia Gibson-Rankin, Associate Professor of Law. They are working with other faculty to create an interdisciplinary course on algorithmic justice. We're looking at really very concerning tracks also on the tech side of things that we're watching, right? So one is just as, as Dr. Powers pointed out, which is nefarious actors, right? These actual intentional behaviors to skew the data, to skew the outcomes, to harm people. And this is what the cybersecurity community is watching. Lots of people are watching these nefarious actors. But there's also just faulty data, right? People Mm -hmm. still have to, at some point, click a button to say what they thought someone's street race was or what they thought their racial category or thought their gender might be or thought Mm -hmm. lots of different categories. So there's Also the issue of just faulty data. But then there's a third one, which is what the artificial intelligence can do today. And long, 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 long gone is this notion of a person sitting in their basement, coding away, writing in these violations of people. What has happened is the software is so advanced that very, very few parameters are given to it. And it's basically told something like, go figure out who would be a good person to get a mortgage from. And it goes in search of IoT, the internet of things, and looks up every piece of data out there in different categories that are unknown because these are proprietary third-party softwares. And it comes back and says, these people. Well, what we've already discovered is that a lot of the society we operate in today is operating because it's based on historically biased data. 
and the software and the algorithms have gone out and just codified and just said, yep, it looks like these are therefore the right people to hire or fire or provide healthcare for or deny loans for because this is what you've always done. And it's just reinforcing past biases and stereotypes. And if we were to think about like the stages of development for an algorithm, what Professor Gibson is talking about happens like at every stage. So when you create the algorithm and then you train the algorithm with data to train its view of the world. Where does the data come from? Who chooses it and is, and what, what she's talking about is so profound, where the data is allowed, I mean, the algorithm is allowed to choose the data, hmm. right? And so there are these legal questions that come up about transparency. You know, are the corporations that create the algorithms, are they required to be transparent about the data that goes in, that trains the algorithm? And then what about the data that comes out, the predictive data? And so are they required to be transparent at every process or every stage? Does it differ legally with respect to their intellectual property rights? One of our colleagues, Chris Moore, talks about these issues quite a bit. Then we have to start thinking about the algorithm as a process from design to training to implementation to what is produced from it, from the data that's produced from the algorithm that then goes into other kinds of analyses as well that then come into my world. And it has a huge impact. Now, there are private companies, obviously, as you pointed out, using this, but and you've also pointed out it's being used in the public sphere, making decisions around criminal justice. Are you finding the same opacity in algorithms that are used in the public space? Public money was used to buy those or develop those? You're exactly right on point, Megan, about where we have some growing concerns, which are, you know, many of these third party proprietary softwares have indemnification clauses built in that, however, the government, if that is who is who has purchased it or private bank or whatever other, whether it's public or private purchases it, we are shielded. Our developers, our creation of the software is shielded in a way so that we cannot be drawn into lawsuits, drawn into any potential liability of any harm that might come from the software. Now, my heart as a computer scientist loves the idea of invention and creation and expansion and what else can we do? And, you know, between us and everyone engaged in this, it is really exciting to watch a computer be a chess master. It is really interesting to see my face converted some kind of filter on some kind of social media product, right? It's a lot of fun, but it becomes a lot less fun when it is unaware of how this product works and it's determining someone's access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what we're hoping to do, Dr. Powers, myself, Dr. Moses, and some colleagues that we're, we're gaining across the nation, is to start to educate the next generation of political scientists and engineers and lawyers to be thinking about these issues at the forefront as opposed to being reactionary and 
dealing with them once it hits them in the public square. We want them to be thinking about it from its inception when they're designing the laws, when they're designing the tech, when they're designing how it impacts the people in the different public spaces. And that's what I think is one of the most exciting parts of our work is that, you know, we're going to just start going upstream and actually solving it before we get to these things in the public square. You're listening to University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm talking about a new course on algorithmic justice at UNM that is in the works. We have two of the people working with others on its creation. Kathy Powers is an associate professor of political science at UNM, and Sonia Gibson-Rankin is an associate professor of law. So it sounds like by the very nature of what you've described, this course will have to be cross-disciplinary, yes? Yes. Which is one of the most exciting parts to myself, to Dr. Powers, to all of our colleagues, because we have learned so much about what we don't know. The most important thing to know is what you don't know. Just from talking to Dr. Powers, it's really made me go back and reflect differently on how we have certain ways that we go about proving liability under the law and what else could be done. It has led our colleagues in computer science to start reflecting, huh, it's more than just this variable that I put in. It's how many different ways can this variable be used that can go against what I initially intended or believed it to be. I think it's made us all richer researchers. It has made our discussions very profound. And it's led us to get to lots of new spaces to talk to lots of people in positions of authority to do something about this already. And will it be for graduate students or undergrads or both? Graduate students in law, computer science, political science to start out with. Professor Rankin, Dr. Melanie Moses, and I will be co-teaching the class together, but we're going to have experts from around the country. We're going to utilize technology and have them zoom in and give lectures as well, and really trying to begin with thinking sort of in two ways. We have the next generation of scholars who will conduct research on this, and we have the next generation of algorithmic designers and how can we help them to think more about these issues as they're actually designing them? So I know, so for instance, in, in the world that I work in the social scientific study of political science, we use quantitative methods, we use algorithms in our research, but we haven't thought as much about algorithmic bias as I would say uh, my colleagues in law have because they're actually dealing with these cases. They're using algorithms in their work and the cases that come from them. So this is a great opportunity for the students also to learn from each other and selfishly from, uh, for us to learn from each other as well, which has been awesome. And, and where I come in is thinking a lot about also the governance issues. So how do you govern this technology and when it's crossing national borders instantaneously and there are these late, there's variation across countries of the world, whether or not they have national legislation or not, like the UK does, the United States doesn't. Hmm, interesting. The European Union is developing extensive legislation mm-hmm. about algorithmic justice. Now we have international organizations who are trying to figure out and who have argued, and the United Nations Commission on Human Rights has argued, this is one of the human rights issues of the future. 
And so in the world of law, we come to those same issues and say, jurisdiction, where can I even file the case? Which law is going to be the ones we'll look at, right? The, the amazing things happening in the EU with some of their GDPR that's happening and the protections that are given to people who are in those spaces that aren't afforded to someone in Albuquerque, to someone in Wichita, Kansas, protections that might even be afforded to someone under the California Consumer Privacy Act, which might be afforded to someone right over the next jurisdictional line. And so all of these things are interrelated. I am continually amazed and wowed at what I have seen University of New Mexico graduate students produce and create. We actually don't plan to give them too many limitations. They're going to see Mm -hmm. things and operate with things and design things that are going to completely blow our minds. So that's what I'm really looking forward to is just seeing what happens when we let graduate students do what they're supposed to do, go and solve. So do you anticipate them addressing existing algorithms or writing new algorithms with all these things in mind or both? Yes and yes. <laughs> I, I think that what we're really hoping to do is that each subgroup will have um, students from computer science and political science and law. And they're going to get an opportunity to really think about their various disciplinary areas of study, pick an area in all of society, there won't be any limitations, and say, what do you think we can do next? And it'll really be at the helm of the students and their own brilliance to solve things that we aren't even anticipating and thinking and seeing because of the ways that we're watching our students operate today that are so different than even a generation before. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see what they find to be the best next step in a lot of areas. Uh, we're hoping that we'll have groups of students that are interdisciplinary, one from each discipline. So now only do students have the opportunity in law and political science to write an algorithm, but students in computer science get a chance to to figure out and hear about the legal implications of that decision, the policy implications of that decision. And so not only is it with respect to the reading that the class is interdisciplinary, but with respect to approaching the algorithmic assignments, they will have to think across all of these lines, each and every one of them, which is exciting for us. I just want to say, mention something that um, Professor Gibson mentioned about us talking to people. Our group has actually talked to New Mexico state legislators about algorithms. The New Mexico Committee on Criminal Justice Reform, for example, we've invited legislators to our meetings to talk with us about this. And so we've had an opportunity to talk to the lawmakers about how do, how do these things work if we just think about them even as a basic recipe, what comes in and what comes out. And then how does that then, can you help us understand how you think about it from a legislative perspective? So I'm hoping as we can get someone to come to class to talk about, okay, how do you make laws about this? And which becomes really difficult in terms of first learning how they work. And then something that is pervasive, we have to protect intellectual property rights and at the same time protect human rights. And how do you do both the same piece of legislation at the same time? Mm. Well, you were going to say something, Sonia. 
about the next thing. So I can imagine as people are listening, they're thinking, but none of this would make any sense without all of these other parts of thinking, right? Whether it's the arts or humanities or business. And the answer is yes, just let us get started with these areas. And then we can really grow it and branch it like we dream in terms of really bringing in the richness of disciplines that have had an impact and are impacted by the things that are happening with algorithms. When will it first be offered? In the next year, at the most. Okay. So not this yes. semester yes. or spring semester, but... I would, maybe spring yes. or summer we've mm-hmm. been talking about, potentially the following fall. Okay. But it sounds like you have big plans beyond this one course. Yes. And what we're hoping is that it eventually not only becomes interdisciplinary even more within UNM, but also, also multi-university. Mm. So that we bring you in other um, minority-serving institutions, um, HBCUs, and then just other scholars and their students who are interested in learning about this. So our hope is that it expands. The group with the Santa Fe Institute, is this sort of the place where this sort of um, percolated? Mm -hmm. So about, I would say it's close to four years ago now. Um, Wow, that went quickly. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Melanie Moses and Chris Moore, both of them were working on this issue. And we started talking and we started realizing that there were all these people who were either interested in it or had a skill set that could be applied to this. And just started asking people from around the university and SFI. And so SFI took what we had was a loose working group and now has formalized it into the UNM SFI interdisciplinary working group on algorithmic justice. And um, is very interested in ways that it can support the group as well as expand sort of what we're working on. So it's become a good time for us to be connected to SFI, especially with Um, the recent Nobel Prize in physics, where one of the winners does complex science theory, which SFI is known for. And we're bringing some of that into this work. So really trying to think about from an SFI perspective, the role of complexity. And how do we take into account that there are these systems that are emerging? Like Professor Gibson is talking about, these systems of algorithms, of data, that is interconnected or not, that is interacting with smaller units. And how can that help us understand, like really understand the impact of algorithmic bias? I think now, I I would say from a social science uh, perspective and maybe in, yeah, definitely the hard sciences, we used to really pursue elegance as an economic theory. And we're realizing, especially in a world of climate change and pandemics that the world is complex, and that we need ways of thinking that incorporate that complexity. So that's part of the thinking behind all of this. Okay. Wow. This is fascinating. Well, thank you both for talking with me on University Showcase. It'll be really interesting to see what comes out of all this when you offer the first course. Yes. And we're just ever so grateful to the Advance Project and to the Women in STEM Scholars <laughs> Program and to the University Research for giving us this kind of support and this wind beneath our wings to do this work, for recognizing in particular that for women scholars that there can 
when you are purposeful about where you put your funds and your resources, amazing things can happen. And so we're ever so grateful to the university research community for supporting this work and for all of our other colleagues who also received this award and this recognition. Definitely. And to our departments and Department of Political Science, School of Law, um, Department of Computer Science, Department of Africana Studies for supporting us. And thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. That was Kathy Powers, Associate Professor of Political Science at UNM, and Sonia Gibson, Associate Professor of Law. They're working with Professor Melanie Moses and others to create an interdisciplinary course on algorithmic justice at UNM. Find this episode and all our episodes at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. <laughs> <laughs>